back to the programme. So we've been thinking, haven't we, um, A Life Less Ordinary has been the title. And uh, we've been thinking, well, really, the, the, the talks have been an explora- exp- the whole talks have been an exploration of what happened when Jesus interrupted a meal. You've been thinking about meals, haven't you, as a church? Well, what happened, recorded for us in John 13, when Jesus interrupted a meal, we told when the meal was over, he took a towel um, and he washed his disciples' feet. Remember, we looked at that on the first night, John chapter 13. And what we said was that um, uh, Jesus was demonstrating what true ministry looks like. And I made the comment, didn't I, that we're all called to ministry, every one of us, the moment we got saved, however we became a Christian, uh, that was when we were called uh, to ministry. For most of, most of us, our chief sphere of ministry perhaps is our place of work. It's not an alternative to ministry, but is in fact, for most of us, our chief sphere of ministry. So all of us are called uh, to ministry. And we thought about the Jesus model, which uh, indeed is countercultural, even countercultural when it comes to church culture, which uh, teaches us that all ministry is expressed in service. And then I poised, poised the question Friday night, but how? And we looked at John 13, verse 3, where it says Jesus knew three things. Jesus knew that uh, the Father had given him all power, that he'd come from God, and that he was going to God. Three things that Jesus knew that enabled him to fulfill his ministry. And I said they're keys to, for us as well to enable us to fulfill our ministries. Three things Jesus knew, um, um, and th- three keys for us if we're to live a life less ordinary and to serve him in a way that makes a difference. And those, these, those three things um, were uh, to know where we are ultimately going, uh, to know who we are, and to know what resources we have. Um, so uh, session one, the main session yesterday, we looked at destiny. And um, it's a saying in leadership, you start with the end in mind. So perhaps it's unusual, the first talk being destiny, but we were starting with the end in mind. Um, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 2 um, uh, says, says this. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So we were thinking all about heaven. And actually funny, so, um, I didn't actually say, but do you notice in the questions, we did the group time afterwards, one of the questions was about a school motto. And uh, some of you might have thought that was a bit random because I didn't actually say anything to do with the, the school. I actually forgot to say in the talk. That was the school motto of Beaumont College uh, when this hotel was a school. So if you look to my right, these photographs here, um, uh, you can see there's a, a big crucifix there and there's a, a statue of some saint. And you might notice there's various religious-looking objects around the hotel. And that's because this stately home um, was sold to the Jesuits at, at the end of the 19th century. And for, first of all, it was a seminary for the Jesuits. That's the Society of Jesus, founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola. And, uh, and then it was a Jesuit public school for many years. It was, it was referred to as the Roman Catholic Eton. And uh, anyways, it was, when, so it was when this hotel was a school that its motto was, uh, was that Eterna non uh, caduca, which literally means the eternal, not the earthly. So uh, that's why I, th- I threw that school motto in there, just to explain, because the motto of the school, uh, when this was a school, was actually the motto of what we were thinking about in our first session yesterday, that we're to fix our eyes and our minds and our hearts on the eternal and not the earthly. Then the second session yesterday was identity, the question, who am I? And uh, what I was arguing essentially was the key to knowing who you are is found in knowing whose you are. If that you belong to God, uh, who is 
the Father. And when you give your life to Christ, God becomes, in fact, uh, your Father. And we looked at Luke 15, didn't we? Um, in which Jesus reveals, through that amazing story, um, God the Father. He reveals God to be a perfect Father, and therefore one that can be trusted. And uh, I argued that that could be a redemptive thing, even for those of us who had um, bad, bad examples of earthly fathers, or uh, far from perfect exa- examples of earthly fathers. That could be a, a redemptive thing. So we come to our final session today, which is extraordinary power. Just try to click it on here. Doesn't seem to be working. Can we click on the next one? There we go. Extraordinary power. So why is it then that many Christians um, feel so spiritually powerless? It was Jesus who referred to the Holy Spirit as power from on high. And yet it's been said that if uh, God was to remove the Holy Spirit from many of our churches, uh, you, would, you actually wouldn't notice. For many of our churches, you wouldn't actually notice if that was the case. Uh, some, someone has said that in years gone by. The author of the book of Hebrews said this of the Bible. Uh, for the word of God, re- referring to the scriptures, the written word of God, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest of two-edged swords. And yet many Christians don't use this amazing, amazing weapon in their armory. And in fact, there are some Christians who are not even convinced that they believe the Bible in any meaningful sense. So that's what we're going to do in this final session. We're looking at uh, the two main things, I believe, in the Christian's armory, namely word and spirit. And we've had uh, this reading just read to us, an amazing passage, which is where uh, the early Christians, some of the early Christians, um, find, first of all, they find themselves uh, in prison for a little bit. Uh, for preaching the name of Jesus and then the release. And this prayer meeting is convened. And we get to eavesdrop on this prayer meeting that happens shortly after the day of Pentecost when the church is in revival mode. It's growing exponentially. And what this, what this reveals to us, this bit of narrative from the Acts of the Apostles, the first church history, is how the, those early Christians, they were hallmarked with these two things, word and spirit. These are, these are things... Uh, by which they had power, spiritual power. So that's what we're going to be exploring uh, today. Let me just pray at this, this point. So Father, um, continue to be with us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. And in fact, as we meditate on your word, your word written, uh, so um, pour your Holy Spirit in our hearts and upon our minds, we pray, uh, that you might speak to us and we might <coughs> be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I was first ordained, I, I, uh, I couldn't drive. I was ordained at 27 and I'd, I couldn't drive. I think I was a remedial driver. And uh, I think I got the test the seventh time round. Don't know whether anyone can beat that. That's pretty good going, isn't it? And anyway, I just, I just passed my test and I got a curate mobile, a little, little Austin Metro car, which I brought from my brother, younger brother, who's a dealer. And uh, dealer in cars, that is, not nothing else. <laughs> and, uh, and basically, I went off to preach at a carol service. So I was, I was a curate in High Wycombe, and a, vi- and a vicar in Oxford in- had invited me to go and preach at uh, some carol service just before Christmas. So off I went, and this was the days before sat-nav. So this is, you know, 20, 20 odd years ago. The days before sat-nav. So all I had was Greg-nav. And uh, Greg, Greg-nav, the Greg-nav system, <laughs> Tommy would say, still not very good, the Greg-navigational system. And I got, cle- I got completely lost. I sort of... I ended up in the, right in the centre of Oxford, in the kind of Hinksy area, uh, and uh, I was supposed to be out in the sticks of Oxford. 
And, uh, and then worse, so I was running late, I was late. I, in fact, I was late for this carol service. Embarrassing, really embarrassing when you're the preacher. But uh, I was late for this, for this, for this carol service. But, um, uh, but worst of all, I, I basically, as I was about to be late, it, there was a kind of ping, and I noticed it was a non, one of these non-electronic cars in those days. But there was a ping, very carefully. There was a ping, which basically told me I was about to run out of petrol. And so I thought, no, no, I'm about to run out of petrol. Need to find a garage. And... Um, and basically, so I patted my pocket where I always keep my wallet, and I set out that morning without my wallet, so I had no money, was lost, late for a carol service, running out of petrol. But what I did is I, I uh, found, and uh, this is uh, to help us, uh, there we, there we are. I was supposed to be, funny enough, in Wantage, that's where the carol service was, so it was miles away, and I was in, the, I was in North Hinksy Village, just south of Oxford, uh, there, and uh, run out of petrol, that was, my, that was kind of like my curate's mobile. Anyway, then I remembered, what's in North Hinksky is the diocesan offices, the Oxford diocesan offices. And I'd only been ordained a few weeks before, and Richard Harris, that's the guy, uh, Lord Harris, he, he is now, Richard Harris was the Bishop of Oxford, and he'd done our ordination retreat, and he said to the ordinands just before we were ordained, he said to, he'd, in his spiritual charge, he said, I'm here if ever you need me for anything. <laughs> so uh, so I, drove my, I drove my car into North Hinksky office, went in, I said, uh, went to the desk at the front, I said, can I see the Bishop of Oxford? person said, have you got an appointment? And I said, no, just could you, could you ping through on the intercom, tell him it's the curate of Hazelmere, he'll see me. And uh, so she pressed the button and she said, Bishop, it's the curate from Hazelmere, Reverend Greg Downs. He says, you'll see him. So he said, send, send him up. He said, he said, he said. So I went, to, went into his office, he swung around in his leather chair, I told him the story, and I said, Bishop, he said, you know, you, you'd be here if you ever need me, can you lend me a tenner? And, um, and he did, he lent me a tenner. I managed to get to a garage, filled up and got to the got to the uh, service a little bit late. It was a bit of a, an embarrassing experience of power failure. And, uh, and I'd like to say that's the first time I've run out of petrol. I think it's three times I've actually run out of petrol. You've rescued me one time, haven't you, love, on the side of the road, <laughs> when I completely ran out of petrol. Somewhat embarrassing. Anyway, um, but you know, as Christians, we can, even as Christians, we can struggle from power failure. We can struggle from spiritual impotency. In fact, many Christians do struggle from spiritual impotency. But actually, that is not the will of our sovereign God for each of us, that as Christians, we should be spiritually powerless. John Wesley, quoted him already, haven't I? One of my heroes, great Oxford uh, evangelist from the 18th century. Um, the kind of a revival movement was birthed from his ministry that we know, know as Methodism uh, worldwide. But he was fearful for the group that was called, the, the people called Methodists, as they were referred to in some of the ancient documents, he was fearful that they would lose their revival DNA, um, that being hallmarked of a people of power, a people of spiritual power. Wesley said this, he said, uh, my fear is that our people, the people called Methodists, will become content to live without the fire, um, the power, the excitement, the supernatural element that makes us great. And uh, many Christians, sadly, that's, that's true, many Christians are content to live without these things. I was on the staff before Wycliffe of a church in York, St. Michael of Belfry. Uh, there was a very famous vicar there, David Watson. In fact, some people have, just this morning actually, Audrey mentioned, I think it was Audrey, mentioned David Watson uh, to me. David Watson, amazing vicar. And he uh, had this little uh, soundbite that says it pretty well. He says, take the word without the spirit and you'll dry up. Take the spirit without the word and you'll blow up. But take the spirit and the word and you'll grow up. It's, it's, a, it's a really simple statement, isn't it? But there's truth there. We need to be a people of word and spirit. I know that St. Barney's in its DNA is that. Um, a, a, it's a kind of word and spirit church. I know very much that's uh, Andy Anuta's heart to, be, to lead the church in, in, uh, with, with, to continue in, the, in this, the word and the spirit. 
Jesus was critical, wasn't he, of the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. And this is what he said. This was one of his most stinging critiques of them. Um, he said um, he was disputing with them about a theological issue to do with um, uh, marriage and eternity and things like that. But this was his critique. Uh, he said this, um, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Um, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So that was his critique for their theological error. They knew, knew they thought they knew the scriptures. They were very biblicist, actually. Um, but they are, in, in, in reality, they didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. And that phrase, the power of God, is often used in scripture as a synonym for the Holy Spirit. Here's a quotation from a, a guy called Andrew Wilson. Dr. Andrew Wilson is a theologian within the New Frontiers group of churches. Um, and uh, he says this, to be worth using, he says, the phrase word and spirit needs clarity. And my suggestion is that, uh, no, it no doubt does, for many people who use it, it should function as shorthand for two convictions that are by no means universally shared, but which probably characterize most people who identify this way. Word, we're committed to the absolute authority and accuracy of scripture, even where it flies in the face of ecclesial tradition, contemporary culture, or intellectual fashion. And spirit, we're committed to experiencing and not merely believing in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit today. Eagerly desiring spiritual gifts and especially prophecy, taking the book of Acts as a vision of what church life can be, that's what we're doing this morning, um, rather than a record of what it once was, and pursuing the baptism in and filling with the Holy Spirit. So that's his definition, and one of the things he says is, is taking the book of Acts as normative. So it's appropriate, therefore, isn't it, that one of the things we're doing this morning is looking at the book of Acts and this early church prayer meeting. So basically, they were having this prayer meeting. Persecution had just set in. Stephen had died. Stephen was one of the seven, not the twelve. He was one of the deacons of the early church called to serve, along with Philip, who was a deacon and then an evangelist. So Stephen was a deacon and then a martyr. He died for his faith. So persecution sets in. The church was birthed in revival, which uh, I take to be an, an exponential growth of the church. And they basically come together and they pray. And notice uh, what, it, what it says is, on their release, Peter and John, they went back to their own people. They reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. It's wonderful, isn't it? They came to God. This is just a, 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 a little extra one thrown in. They came to God, God not as a last resort, but as a first resource. Um, how many of us as Christians, we come to the Lord when, when, when the problem's hit. We come as a last resort, not as a first resource. And I love the fact that they address God um, as, as sovereign Lord. In other words, you are king, you are in charge. That's the title they use for him. They say to him that you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So in other words, you're... You're sovereign in creation and you're sovereign in redemption, they say. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. So they, they remind God that you've, you have spoken to us by your Holy Spirit. And then they quote scripture, the scripture that they had, what we call the Old Testament. So in quote, they don't say the Bible says or the Old Testament. Uh, well, they wouldn't refer to the Old Testament. The, the Jewish are scriptures. They don't say our scriptures say. They say you said, quoting the Old Testament, uh, you said. And... Um, uh, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
And actually, uh, here it is uh, in context. It's actually Psalm 2. It's the first two verses of Psalm 2. And what the, what the verses are doing, they're saying that actually there will be opposition as, as, God's, uh, as, as the gospel of God is proclaimed, there will be opposition. Um, but actually God um, is, is sovereign. God has, got, God has got it in control. The point here is, we could go further with this, is that, that they were rooted in the word. That's the, the point of, 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 of this point. The, these were a people who were rooted in the scriptures they were rooted in the word of God. And so when they spoke, when they prayed scripture, holy scripture, the writings of God, that they believed were authored by God himself, the Holy Spirit, the, holy, the, 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 the word of God came out of them. They, they, they dared to think God's thoughts after him. All Christians, <clears throat> I think, would say that they're a people of the word in different ways. But Martin Luther, there's a, there's a statement attributed to him, at least, that's, that says this, that the test of fidelity to scripture is not when we believe the bits of Bible that resonate with the culture we find ourselves in, but actually, do we believe the bits of scripture that all of a sudden don't resonate with the culture we happen to be in? And culture changes from epoch to epoch, from generation to generation. So it's different for us now as it was for our Victorian forebears, so to speak. Here's what... Luther um, is attributed to have, to, have, to have said, he said, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at this point. We're called to be people of the word, even the bits of the Bible that um, jar with the culture that we find ourselves in at the moment. The scripture um, the Bible has always been significant to me right from the word go from when I became a Christian. So much so, actually, Tammy, uh, my, my wife, it was my 50th birthday of the week, and she um, wrote around various friends, various of my friends, and asked if they wanted to chip in to buy me a, an old Bible, a Geneva Bible. And uh, she organized for, me to buy, for this Bible to be bought, which um, was the translation before the King James edition that was, that was published in 1560. And uh, I've got a, a 1608, it's a 1608 edition of the Geneva Geneva Bible. And I mentioned a bit of my story the other day, didn't I, about coming from a non-Christian home that was pretty dysfunctional and, uh, and shared ab ab about that. So how did I become a Christian then? Well, my mum wasn't a churchgoer. She was a church sender. So at the bottom of our road, um, providentially, there was a little evangelical church where we lived in Lancaster in northwest of England. There was a little evangelical church. My mum enrolled us into the Sunday school of that church. Thank goodness it was a small evangelical church. It wasn't the Moonies or something, because I'm not convinced 100% she'd have known the difference. But anyway, she enrolled, she enrolled us into uh, to, uh, this little evangelical church. They sent me off on a camp. Uh, this, 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 so it was a kid's camp. I was 11 years of age. It was the summer of 1980, the summer between my primary school and my secondary school. Um, I'd, I basically wasn't from this church background. I'd never read the Bible. We never had the Bible read to us. And... You know the kind of thing, there were talks each night in the, in the, on, the, on the camp. And it was towards the end of the week that one of the talks really hit home to me, but I didn't, quite, I could, didn't know quite what to do with it. I couldn't quite piece it together. So afterwards, after the evening meeting had finished, we all had cocoa, we had hot, hot, hot chocolate before we were all sent off to, to bed. I wasn't my usual chatty self, so I went to a window with my hot chocolate. I looked out this window and looked into a quadrangle. The camp was held in an English public school. And as I looked out into this quadrangle, it was going dark, and there was a beehive in the corner of the, um, 
the, the corner of the quadrangle. And bees were flying around um, the beehive and going back into the beehive. And at that point, um, a phrase popped into my head from nowhere, clear as a bell, from nowhere. And, and the exact words of that phrase, still remember it now, were this, sin stings, but Jesus can take away that sting. That was the phrase, just popped into my head from nowhere. Nowhere, sin stings, but Jesus can take away that sting. So I, it, it made sense to me. I knew what it was as an 11-year-old boy to get a bee sting and uh, to have it have to take, take, take it out. I knew, I knew what it was. So I put my hot chocolate down, off I went, found a quiet place in the school, room where nobody was, got on my knees, and I get, repented of my sins, gave my life to Jesus Christ. That was the genesis of my life as a Christian disciple. So bees are pretty significant to me. If you go into a house in uh, North Oxford, uh, that's, the, that's on the wall. There's a, uh, there's a picture of this big bumblebee uh, on the wall, and that's um, the reason. There's the public school. It was Culford School in Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk. And, uh, and that was the phrase that popped into my head, sin stings, but Jesus can take away the sting. Now, it was years later, years later, that I realized that that phrase, sin stings, but Jesus can take away the sting, is a pretty accurate paraphrase of a verse that appears in the Bible. So accurate is it a paraphrase that if you Google, uh, one, if you Google that, that phrase, sin stings, but Jesus can take away the sting, uh, this comes up. There's, there it is. That's the, that's the Google entry. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56 comes up. And you might be familiar with that verse. Here it is. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was later that I was to realize that theologians would say that this verse, there are others like it, this verse in some ways is a... A, a, a soundbite of the whole gospel. So there are some verses which are like gospel soundbites. In, in, in other words, the whole of the gospel are distilled into one verse. Theologians, uh, I, I later found out when I read theology, they, they sometimes talk about the whole of the gospel effectively being the full redemption paradigm. There are verses that express this, such as, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. This is one of those verses. The sting of sin is death, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God... He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's bad news before it's good news. And I still marvel that the sovereign God of the universe should actually speak to me as an 11-year-old kid, working-class boy from a dysfunctional home in the northwest of England, that the sovereign God of the universe should speak to me in that way and give me a, verse of, a paraphrase of a verse in scripture, and actually the distilled essence of the gospel, which as an evangelist, it's my call and my privilege to preach. I, mar I marvel at that. We need to be a people who are rooted in the word. And so that's my first question this morning. Are you rooted in the word? I know your churches, your local churches, but are you rooted in the world, word? Okay, the second thing is that these early Christians, they were full of the Holy Spirit. Notice their prayer when they get to the end of their prayer. Meeting, They say this, stretch out your hand to heal, they say to God, and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be manifest. Stretch out your hand, they say to God, heal. Perform signs and wonders, do the miraculous, they say, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They, they, they were people of the Spirit. They were people who were full of the Spirit. Obviously, the Pentecost had just happened. They were people called to be um, those who... Um, were, were, were baptized in the Spirit. That word, baptized in the Spirit, from the Greek word baptism, which literally means to soak, to saturate, to, to be immersed. 
Um, I noticed actually if you look to the right and the left of where I'm speaking, these amazing pieces of artwork, and I was looking the other night, last night, thinking, gosh, what is it? And I thought, gosh, it almost looks as if you're being submerged in water. Imagine you're kind of on a surfboard. I've done that. I've never managed to stay on one, of course. But uh, you, you, you fall off into the water. And poof, you're under, there's that bit where you're under, under the water, where you dive in a swimming pool. You're sub, submerged. Well, that's what it is to be, that's what baptism means, to be saturated, to be soaked, to be immersed. Our calling is to be immersed within the Holy Spirit, immersed in the very life of God. I mentioned already that this is a Jesuit public school, was a Jesuit public school for many years, and the chapel is still here. I've wandered into it once or twice. Anyone, anyone found the chapel yet? Anyone, a few people have found the chapel. So here it is. Uh, it's pretty grand. And right at the front, uh, there is a window dedicated to the Holy Spirit, as you can see there, symbolized, of course, as a dove. Um, the, the window is dedicated to the Holy Spirit. That's what the, the, the Jesuits um, had put in. It's called the Medallion of the Holy Ghost, it's, it's referred to. Um, the centerpiece of the rose window at the east of the Beaumont Chapel. Chapel was built in 1870 by Joseph Hansen. But for many people, the, the Holy Ghost is, is a doctrine on a page rather than a person that they experience, certainly on a, on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Our call is to be a people of the Spirit. Len, Leonard Ravenhill, he was the guy, by the way, who said if the Holy Spirit was removed from the churches, many churches would continue and you wouldn't notice any difference. Leonard Ravenhill, he wrote a book called Why Revival Tarries. He said this, he says, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running uh, when there's a fire. Likewise, if your church is on fire, you will not have to advertise it. The community will already know it. The community will already know it. We're called to be a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. So the question is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you baptised with the Holy Spirit? Are you saturated, soaked? Are you immersed in the Holy Spirit? Because that's God's will for you to be a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And therein lies spiritual power. To be rooted in the word, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, therein lies spiritual power. Okay, in conclusion, what we see in the passage is the power of the word and the spirit working together. Notice the answer to the, to the prayer. Verse 31, the, this is the, the answer that God gave to the prayers of his people. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Notice both. They were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. I don't know whether you recognize this individual. This is Reverend William J. Seymour. Uh, he was uh, an American pastor who was the pastor of um, a chapel in Azusa, place, Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. And uh, under his ministry, I think the, the um, Azusa Street revival happened from 1906 to 1915. And the Azusa Street Revival saw that the outbreaking of the gifts of the Spirit afresh. Uh, they hadn't completely disappeared, I think, but they were pretty dormant in the vast majority of the church. So things like speaking in tongues and healing and things like that. And, uh, and actually, the, 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 the denomination we know as the Assemblies of God um, sees its origins through this Azusa Street Revival. A few years ago, Tammy and myself, just about five years ago now, we were in the, we were in the States for a protracted period, we, and we were headed to... Uh, to Los Angeles, the City of Angels as its official title. And we were in this higher, higher car, it was a va this higher car van that we were, we were using, and we were arriving late. It was going dark as, as we got into Los Angeles. And Anastasia was three, and Trinity was just born. Our little baby, Trinity was just a baby then, so this is then. Anyway, so I said to Tammy, look, I, I, on the sat-nav, I put in Azusa Street. 
And Tommy said, what are you, what are you doing? But I, I basically thought, I've not been to LA before. I want to see this Azusa Street. So anyway, we, we rocked up to Azusa Street. There it is, that's a photograph that I took, Azusa Street Mission. We parked the car at the top of Azusa Street. And opposite um, Azusa Street, it turns out, is a cul-de-sac. So we parked the car at the top left-hand side of Azusa Street. Um, on the right-hand side of Azusa Street, there was a, 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 like a little car, there was a flower bed with a little car park. So uh, I got out of the car and, I, and Tommy says, what are you doing? I said, I'm just, I won't be, I'll just be a few minutes, I'm just going on a prayer walk. And this is downtown LA and it's gone dark. So uh, she, she, she said, oh, you know, basically, she obviously puts the security locks on. She's in there with our two kids. And, so, and I just go for this prayer walk and I go down, I walk down Azusa Street and I thank the Lord for the Reverend William J. Seymour. And uh, I said, Lord, we need another Pentecost. I used the phrase, that, a prayer of the great William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. I said, send the fire. I said, we need another Pentecost. Do it again, Lord. That was my prayer. I got to the top of Azusa Street and I met uh, this, this guy appeared out of nowhere. Mike, his name was, a young guy in his 20s. And he basically said, can I have some money? By now, I'm at the top of Azusa Street. Tammy, in full view of Tammy, uh, who is kind of watching the proceedings, almost like th uh, through the windscreen of the window, almost like a TV, TV screen. So I say a quick prayer, because I think you know, I, could get, I don't want to get mugged or anything like that. And I say a quick arrow prayer. Anyway, I think it's the right thing. Give this guy some money. I ask him, does he, have any, does he believe in God? He says that he does believe in God, but he's never given his life to Christ. He's never experienced the Spirit. I share something of the gospel with him. And then I, I say to him, would you like to give your life to Christ? Mike says he, he would like to give his life to Christ. So he prays a simple prayer, uh, turning from his sins, turning to Jesus Christ. He gives his life to God. And, uh, and then I, I do what I often do. I just put a hand on his, sh on his shoulder and I just pray that he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. When I do this, Mike's eyes start flickering, 10 to the dozen, and uh, he, he basically starts to fall back. So I, I get hold of him like this and sort of lower him down to the ground. And he's there kind of with his eyes flickering and he's sort of shaking on the, on the, on the floor. And um, at this point, I glance back at Tammy and she, she looks at me. You can imagine, you know, what on earth, what are you doing? What, what, what is going on? At this point... Um, there's a car that come, the, the car drive, a car drives into the cul-de-sac. So I stand, of course, in front of Mike and I say, no, 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 you can't, you can't come in here. So he turns around obediently, the car, and it goes out again. Then a few minutes later, a uniformed police officer comes from the Los Angeles um, police department. And he says, hey, you know, this guy's lying supine. Hey, what's going, on? what's going on here? And I said, oh, officer, I said, I'm a pastor from England. I've just prayed for this man, and he's just been touched by the Holy Spirit. And the police officer goes, well, absolutely fine, pastor. Just carry on. And he walks off. And I, he walks off. I thought, only in America. Only in America. In London, I'd have been in Brixton, Nick. But uh, only in America. Anyway, so uh, Mike, anyway, gets up. Uh, Mike eventually gets up and he says, you know, he said, when you prayed, he said, he said I, it was like a weight lifted from me. And I've heard that many times. You know, the promise of Jesus, come to me, all who carry heavy loads, I will give you rest. And uh, we, I talked to him a little bit uh, more about stuff. Then get in, get in the car and off, off we go to our hotel. When I get in the car, I have a kind of one of those kind of slightly funny deja vu moments, whatever, where I think to myself, gosh, um, I've, I've, not only have I dreamt that, but actually I wrote it. I actually, I, did, I genuinely, I had a dream years ago about that happening, and I wrote it down in a diary because I used to keep a diary every day. Don't anymore, but used to keep a diary every day. And I remember it was, gosh, when I was at Wycliffe Hall as an ordinand, I was actually in Puerto Rico on a mission trip, and I had that. And, and I thought, where is it? I've not seen the diary since. So when we got home, we got back to England. But where's the diary? Of course, I found it in a box in the garage where everything's kept, isn't it? So I, I found the diary, and I, I, I can't have looked at this diary for, for years, perhaps since I wrote it, I don't know. And I opened the I sat there in the garage in York, opened the diary and uh, found the end, entry where I'd, I'd had this dream. And as I read it, my eyes filled up with tears. And here's a photograph of the entry. Had a dream last night about leading a, a man to Christ in a car park. As we prayed, he was slain in the spirit. And my wife 
Question mark, exclamation mark. Watched on anxiously. I think she was a doctor. And this was, this was, this was years before I'd met, I'd met, met Tammy. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is the one who wishes to honour his word, which is true, and fill his people with his power that we might live for him. So my question in coming into land is this. Are you rooted in the word? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? We're going to have an opportunity in a, a few moments to offer prayer and there'll be prayer, prayer again in the next session we're having communion together in the next session after the break what I want to do at this point is, is simply give an opportunity for anyone here who perhaps has never received Christ to receive Christ all the churches most of the churches that I minister to there's usually a kind of a group of people who are perhaps not yet Christians they're journeying with the community uh, checking it out that kind of thing so maybe your church is no different and uh, if that is if that is the case and you've never given your life to Christ. I want to finish with a simple prayer that you can pray to give your life to Christ. Here's the, here's the prayer. And uh, it says, Heavenly Father, I believe, this is, I'll just read it first. I believe your word tells me to trust your son who died for me that I might be free. I turn from my sin to your son now. Thank you for your spirit who empowers me to live for you. Fill me please with your spirit now. Give me power to follow Christ, I pray, this day and always. That's the, that's the prayer. Let's just bow our heads together. And I, I'm going to invite you. I'm not going to... Um, I'm not, not going to ask you to identify yourself in any way, but if this is you, if, you, if, this is, if you, you've been journeying with the community for a bit with Barneys and you think now's the time to give your life to Christ, I, I just encourage you to pray this prayer as I, as I pray it out loud. Pray it in the quietness of your own heart and as I pause at the end of each line, just make it your own prayer. Here we go. Heavenly Father, I believe your, that your word tells me to trust your Son who died for me that I might be free. I turn from my sin to your son now. Thank you for your spirit who empowers me to live for you. Fill me please with your Holy Spirit now. Give me power to follow Christ, I pray this day and always. Amen. If you have uh, prayed that prayer perhaps for the first time or a recommitment to Christ, perhaps you tell Andy uh, or H or Uta, one of the church, one of the church leaders here, um, that you've made that commitment to Christ. But just as we come into uh, land now, I'm just going to finish with a, a prayer for, the, the, for most of us, for the, for the rest of us. And I mentioned already the great General Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, who uh, had this... We wrote a song, actually, uh, Send the, the Fire, referring to the Holy Spirit. And that was the, what, I, what I prayed when I was on Azusa Street. So I'm, I'm going to finish by using it as a prayer for each one of us that God might pour his Holy Spirit afresh upon us. So let's pray together. These are words of, the, of, of William Booth. Uh, Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift Today we claim, send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire, send the fire.
Send the fire. 